This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Matthew Weiner, creator, executive producer, and head writer of the AMC award-winning drama Mad Men, and producer and writer for HBO's award-winning drama The Sopranos. His latest work is a novel called Heather, The Totality, which focuses on an upper-class New York family, Mark and Karen Brigstone, and their daughter Heather, who is the center of their world. Heather is a beautiful young woman with a deep sense of empathy for others. As the parents fight for her attention, a construction worker named Bobby, who is working in their New York City apartment building, sets his gaze on Heather in a manner that is both lustful and highly suggestive of violence. Heather's father, Mark, notices Bobby's stares and cannot sit idly by. The novel is the story of predation and the lengths a father will go to eradicate the threats to his daughter. It should be noted that this interview took place on November 7, 2017. On November 9, Weiner was accused of sexual harassment by Cater Gordon, who was once his personal assistant and then a writer on Mad Men. Gordon told the online news outlet The Information that Weiner told Gordon late one night she owed it to him to let him see her naked. A year later, the two won an Emmy for their writing, but soon after, Gordon was fired. A statement by Weiner's publicist says this. Mr. Weiner spent 8 to 10 hours a day writing dialogue aloud with Miss Gordon, who started on Mad Men as his writer's assistant. He does not remember saying this comment, nor does it reflect a comment he would say to any colleague. During the nine years he was showrunner on Mad Men, Mr. Weiner had a predominantly female-driven writer's room. He has long believed in and implemented an egalitarian working environment, including the highest levels of production and writing based on mutual respect for all. Gordon has since left Hollywood and started a nonprofit called Modern Alliance with the goal of combining research, technology, media, and entertainment to create a cultural shift to put an end to sexual harassment. If you have questions or comments about this interview, you can reach me at First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Facebook or firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. Weiner and I began the discussion talking about what elements make a story. I'm a person who's sort of prone to exaggeration and might be in some weird way uh, an, just an entertainer as a, as a human being. Do you know what I mean? That I, I, I enjoy hearing stories from people. I love jokes. And that, that's, that's in the most primitive version of it, the most social version of it. When you start working um, in, in, in television, which is a collaborative form, and you start talking about telling a story it becomes a very specific thing. And uh, especially for me, starting in sitcom, where, where I was, where you don't even have to write scripts if you don't want to, I mean, or if they don't want you to, where you just sit there and pitch jokes and lines that are funny. The idea of the person in charge of the story is in a very advanced form. The person who's in charge of telling the story and what holds the audience's attention and everything, it, require, it requires more skill, more experience, and some unnameable understanding of, of, of how events will unfold. And by the time I was doing, I was on The Sopranos, where the story was extremely organic and had no formula, um, which is something that you start to rely on early on, you know. I had a good education. I went to film school where I was shown structures and formulas and 
the way that and Aristotle and the way that things are, are that the way that events are supposed to be put together to keep someone interested and twists and foreshadowing and all the other stuff you get in your education. But by the time I was at The Sopranos, it just became more complex and less literal and more uh, tapped into the unconscious, which is, the, I'm going to tell you these events and what is meaningful I will highlight, but the order of things is is going to be um, somewhat from the gut. And um, by the time we did Mad Men and I started to understand what story was, I'm saying it's that late for me. I might have had an organic understanding of it and had my suspicions and instincts confirmed by David Chase, and I had written Mad Men before I got there. But, you know, story for me is always harmonizing against formula. It's always like ha- these are the things that happened, and you want to pick just the most meaningful things that happened. But what you're really doing is telling another person uh, a series of events that, in a way that have meaning. And... You know, I like to have an ending and work towards that. And the ending is sometimes obscure or a mood or hard to put into words. So you're really dealing with something that's kind of delicate once you start to pick it apart. But to me, at this point, I think it's an instinct. And I enjoy surprising people. I enjoy giving people the feeling that I want when I hear a story, which is um, an inevitable conclusion based on the events that it's still somehow unexpected. And that requires removing things, um, shying away from the obvious, shying away from clarity sometimes. And these are all, these are all dangerous things. These are all very dangerous things. And uh, in fact, I um, am so embarrassed by being, by a lack of subtlety in my own work that sometimes there's no clarity at all and I have wonderful people to help me make things more understandable. And at the same time, I frequently do that to other people's work where I'm like, you may think this means something, but nobody knows what this is. So I, I, I don't know what kind of answer that is, but I, it's, 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 um, I love to see life distilled into its most important pieces for, to suggest some kind of meaning or some kind of adventure. And that is like the urge um, but most of the time, I'm recreating a feeling that I've come across in life or that someone's told me about. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Matthew Weiner, author of the novel, Heather, The Totality. You know, I don't know if in film school and obviously throughout your your on-the-job training, they talk about this much, but something that right. we talk about in fiction is that basically literature, and I think that does expand to films and movies, is the quest to express what it means to be human. And I'm just wondering if that language was used as you were coming up and learning about story. No, no one really had anything that uh, I didn't experience, even, even studying poetry as an undergraduate, I really didn't experience anything that definitive in terms of an artistic quest. I arrived at my own um, definition of that, which is, you know, I didn't invent or anything, and I don't, I don't, but I don't think I read it anywhere, which is that I feel like my work is about, um, and it's very similar, I suppose, but about making other people feel less alone. Um, when, when, I, when something works for me and I have a moment of recognition that there's the truth there, 
something is said that I couldn't put into words before, something is acknowledged that is frequently just passes by, that is something that, you know, we are all alone. And I'm not saying that in the saddest way. I'm just saying that's a reality. And when art, whether it's a painting or literature or anything else, can make you um, understand that you something so peculiar and private in your experience is shared by another human being. That is, that's the goal. That is really the goal, especially if you can make it a feeling, um, which is requires more than just putting things into words. So this novel, Heather, the totality is it's a very tight view of a family, Mark and Karen Breakstone, who marry a little bit later in life, have a daughter, Heather, and she becomes their world. And as we kind of go between all of their points of view and getting into their head, we learn when Heather's a teenager that there's some danger lurking around her sexuality and we see uh, a potential predator and then her father and how they eventually intersect. So for you, what was the impetus of this story? Did you have a moment? Did you have a vision? Did you have an idea that you wanted to build out? You, you know, when people get asked about inspiration, I have – this This becomes – I don't want this tale to be um, taken out of context. I'm constantly passing things and overhearing things and writing them down. I write them on my phone sometimes if it doesn't look too rude. If I'm in the presence of other people, I always carry a pen so that I can at least get a moment to get the thought down. Um, sometimes if I'm in the writer's room, uh, I, will, I will just like walk in. You know, If I'm in production, I will just walk in and like say it to my, my assistant. <laughs> um, so this was something that I passed in the street, which was seeing this beautiful schoolgirl walk into a building and, and everyone in the street was paying attention to this girl. It was on a block on the Upper East Side and she was just someone who radiated um, confidence, I guess. She was clearly, you know, still a girl, but she walked into this building under construction and I saw the construction worker there. I saw him give her a look that she did not see that was more than just uh, lust. It was actually terrifying. And I turned the corner and said, I wonder how her father would feel if he saw that. What if her dad saw that? And that was something I just wrote down, just that much of it. What if her dad saw that? And then when I got to Yaddo and was going through my notebooks and I was really just trying to decide, I had two weeks there and I really went there because I was stuck. This was an emergency session in a weird way. I'd never done anything like that. It's very scary, by the way. Um, you're, you're, it's, it's, you're, you're afraid it's going to be competitive. You're alone. I slept for the first 48 hours that I was there. I started going through and saying, well, what am I going to write about? All I really wanted to do was decide what I was going to do next. I brought up my play with me that I was rewriting. I just didn't know. So going through my notebook, that had stuck with me. And I thought, well, that is a story. And it has this crime element to it. It has the threat of murder. It has things that I don't traditionally, I mean, I've worked on The Sopranos, but I have not really spent a lot of time in that world. And I know as a story engine, as something that creates tension, which is what I'm mostly interested in, that that is the right way to do it. That that is enough to at least hold the interest of like, just even if something is, you know, a little bigger than a fortune cookie, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I have tons of those, and most of them are terrible. So that, that's what I was saying about like not, not being misleading. It's not like all gold. There's a lot of garbage in there.
but I have reached a point in my life where I know what's a story and what's not. People tell me things sometimes, and I'm like, can I have that? Especially if they're not writers, because you sort of, you know, you want to, you want to, you know, you don't want to take someone else's life, especially if they're a writer. But for the most part, everyone else's is, is, is uh, you know, fair game. And um, uh, that's, that's what the start of it was. And I knew, I knew that there was enough of a dynamic there. And then your imagination starts to follow and you start to say, okay, so what are they doing in this building? Why is this girl living in this building that's under construction that clearly looks uninhabitable? Who else is in that building? How did her parents end up in that building? Who are her parents? And I started to, to you know, who is that construction worker? How did he end up there? What is it like for him to be there every day? What kind of person is he? And there were other elements that, had, that came in from my life that I was interested in which is that I knew of a couple of real-life cases, one from the news and one from personal experience, two from personal experience, of children who, uh, or, or people who have the gift of empathy and they're born with it. And for, for whatever reason, it makes them more vulnerable to crime, especially to murder, because they won't think of themselves in the, in the moment when they should protect themselves. And... I liked the idea that this was not just a physical attraction, but what started to become the most interesting to me was this mother and father who valued this, that, that everyone who saw this girl with her special qualities, which are not just beauty, um, would feel completed by possessing her. And can you possess another person? And while the, the, the workers thing was, became much more developed and sociopathic and terrifying, and the completion of his life, I love this taboo, you know, of, of the mother and father competing for this child and that this was an only child and this was everything to them. And I don't mean it in the traditional way. I mean, it literally was everything to them that it, it, it had eclipsed their relationship with each other and was the greatest conflict in their life. Who, who had the best relationship with this child because that was the best thing in their life. And, and by the way, I knew the ending. So when I knew the ending, what it really became, and this sounds super mechanical, but it's not, is building people that will behave the way you believe they should behave at the ending. And I don't know if it, I didn't know if it would work. I didn't know if I could create uh, a, an Upper East Side banker who was capable of, you know, having that Liam Neeson urge <laughs> to to um, to defend his family with his own life. I didn't know if that was just a movie thing. I wanted to be very realistic. I wanted you to recognize this person and see that they might be capable of extraordinary heroism, that is, risking their own life, and might be out of their element. And for the mother, and then I became interested in the dynamic of the family. So all of that came out from that. And was a chance. I, I had no idea that I was writing about economic in, inequality. By the way, no idea. That's the strangest thing. I don't write about ideas like that. I write about ideas like that are emotional, like you know, fulfillment and expectation and compromise and joy. The economic inequality thing was something that occurred to me, and I was pretty deep into the story where I realized, like, oh wait a minute, they just came. The Breakstone family just came back from Orlando, and Bobby's getting out of jail. Boy, is this guy having a hard time. He's never even been in New York 
except to go to the circus. He's never been in an apartment. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Matthew Weiner, author of the novel, Heather, The Totality. You know, at the end, as we're, we're looking into Mark and Bobby's minds at the end, that there was some shift in where they started. Basically, you know, when you're talking about Mark, the father, and Bobby, the construction worker, it all has to do with their relationship to violence and how violent they want to be. And I'm just wondering about violence, yeah. violence living inside of people in general. And is there anything when you write about violence that almost elevates it to the sacred? That's so amazing. What an amazing question. I feel like we are living in an illusion, um, and maybe it's being broken constantly right now, that we are civilized and we are animals inside. And Bobby is really close to being an animal. He's completely aware of it. And in fact, he looks at other human beings with curiosity um, because he doesn't, he's missing, he's a sociopath, and he, and by the way, we're surrounded by sociopaths, they're usually not homicidal, but they are curious about human behavior, they do imitate um, a lot of the qualities that we take for granted of empathy and conscience, and it doesn't mean they're devoid of human emotions or, or, or sensation, you can see how sensuous he is, but Bobby's like sense of smell, and his touch and the accuracy of his experience and where he gets pleasure rolling around in the laundry at the, uh, you know, in the warm laundry at the prison, that coins, you know, in conflict with Mark, who is running away from that part of himself. He is not physical enough to be a football player. His father thinks he's effeminate because of that. He has a sister who has starved herself to death who has denied this part of her body. He is a civilized man, and it's unfortunate because his physical qualities are so lacking that he actually, you know, his, his ugliness, I'll just say it as that, is something that makes him feel that he has to depend on his mind or his, his, his ability to earn money, etc. So when violence is, the, it, I don't know if it's the violence or if it's just the animal, the instinct, Mark trusting his instincts about what he saw, Mark realizing that he was unmanly by sharing his fear with his, with his wife, who completely blew it off. His, him being in touch with his instincts, and Bobby, who lives in his instincts, that was what it was about to me. That is sacred on some level. That, um, that, you know, if you say there are a bunch of bears, you know, or if it's a wolf and sheep or whatever you want to say, um, that is sacred to me that, that we are... We are in denial of, what is it, the hairy ape or whatever else it is. We're in denial of our animal nature, and civilization requires that we pretend it's not there, but it is both in the sexual realm, in the courting realm, in, the, in, the, in, the, in business, in, every, in everything, professionally, etc. All of our social activities are based on some kind of animal instinct and animal behavior. And that's, that's sort of what I was trying to show is that Mark has it. He's been in denial of, but he has it. And Bobby is all it. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I'm wondering. I and Karen, Karen as well. Karen's, you know, sexual instincts are like have been tamped down. But Karen is, Karen's motherhood is, is, is a construct, but it's also about her feeling close to another person. And her brain is spinning it out all the time about why she needs this so badly. But it's really just 
trying to have some sense of self. And she is, she is, she is, um, she is holding on to the idea of her relationship and her marriage and parenthood, um, completely divorced from that. I'm sure that you've thought about this before, but I think I read somewhere that you have four sons. So I do. I'm wondering what it was like to inhabit such a place in fiction, which is because does become your reality of of parenting a daughter and that parental instincts over a daughter and how that might differ from your real life. Well, it differs a lot. I mean, on the one hand, you know, there are predators for for sons as well. And so it's not like you, you, you're not always in the realm of protection of your family. As everyone, as all my friends started having children and you, you, your kids go into school, your friends become the other people with children. They become your closest friends and it's part of a shared experience. I have heard so many tales, not only of men, but, and, but women and, and people of whatever, of different, you know, uh, this has nothing to do with like, I don't even know how you're supposed to say this now, with orientation, sexual orientation. But there is a protectiveness that goes on. And having a daughter, and I'm generalizing here in the worst way, sounds like a slightly different experience. Each of my sons has been a different experience. But when I hear, especially men uh, my age, talk about teenage daughters and the conflict of they, they, they are not sexually attracted to their children, but their relationship is, you know, extra complicated to me by the fact that this, there's this incredibly precious, beautiful relationship they have in their life with a young woman who is their daughter, and they're going to have to deal with another man in their life, a boy, a man, and they've been a teenage boy, so it's extra terrifying. Um, so that, you know, I put it in the book where Mark says if she'd been a son, maybe it would have been different, you know. I've just heard of the extra element that goes on there of, I would say it's competitive in some way and jealousy in some way, but it's, it's much more like the conflict in, in a romantic relationship. And all of this is so politically incorrect, I can't even explain it, but I do, I have observed it. And I have not experienced it, but I have observed it. And I just know that there is a physical rage um, that goes along with, with that men have to deal with the fact that their daughters become sexual and, and other men uh, express interest in them and they don't, they want to be grandpas. They want to have son-in-laws. They want to have, you know, they want their daughter to have happiness, but at least for the teenage part of it, especially as, as and I'm again, generalizing as the relationship between the mom and the daughter does seem to turn bad around 13 or 14 years old, it comes back, but they're, they are in a special relationship where they are dealing with the fact that, that there is an extra conflict in there when it comes to their their daughters dealing with the, with 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 men. Can you please read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yes, this was really hard because I'm also not at home around my books, so I had to go online and and I'm very diligent about not stealing anything. So I had to go online and buy this book so I could read this passage to you. Um, it is not fiction. It is what I consider to be one of the most influential things for me, and I'm not alone. Um, as a writer, but this is from Our Town. Our Town is a play by Thornton Wilder um, that takes place somewhere near the end of the 19th century, I believe, and even though it's written in the 20th century. And in the story, um, 
Emily has uh, uh, the young girl who we witnessed her fall, be born and fall in love and die. Um, she's in the cemetery, and she is told that it's possible for her to go back. She's just arrived in the cemetery and relive one day. And all of the other um, dead people who she knows say, don't do it, you'll be sad, don't do it. And she's like, no, I'll pick a great day. So this is in Act 3. Um, so she goes back and she picks her birthday. And she li- it has this great dramatic construction, which is that she walks into the scene that she's been in before, and she can interact with people as she did that day. But she's also still her, this dead soul. So Emily says, um, she goes and walks into the uh, into the kitchen, and she sees her mother saying, to, talking to the father while she's working and not looking at him. And the mother says, "None that I notice. Coffee's ready when you want it." The, the husband starts upstairs. She says, "Charles, don't forget it's Emily's birthday. Did you remember to get her something?" He pats his pocket and he says, "Yes, I've got something here." Then he calls up the stairs. "Where's my girl? Where's my birthday girl?" Then the mother says, "Don't interrupt her now, Charles." You can see her at breakfast. She's slow enough as it is. Hurry up, children. It's 7 o'clock. Now, I don't want to call you again. Emily softly says to her guide, I can't bear it. They're so young and beautiful. Why did they ever have to get old? Mama, I'm here. I'm grown up. I love you all. Everything. I can't look at everything hard enough. She looks questioningly at the stage manager, saying or suggesting, can I go in? He nods briefly. She crosses to the inner door of the kitchen, and she she starts speaking in the, in the voice of a 12-year-old. Good morning, Mama. She crosses to embrace and kiss her, kiss her mother in a matter-of-fact mother, manner. And the mother says, Well now, dear, very happy birthday to my girl and many happy returns. There's some surprises waiting for you on the kitchen table. Emily, oh, Mama, you shouldn't have. She throws an anguished glance at the stage manager. I can't, I can't. The mother says, But birthday or no birthday, I want you to eat your breakfast good and slow. I want you to grow up and be a good, strong girl. That and the blue papers from your Aunt Carrie, and I reckon you can guess who bought the postcard album. I found it on the doorstep when I brought it in when I brought in the milk. George Gibbs must have come over in the cold pretty early. Right nice of him. Emily to herself. Oh George, I'd forgotten that. Chew that bacon good and slow. It'll help keep you warm on a cold day. Emily with mounting urgency. Oh mama, just look at me one minute as though you really saw me. Mama, fourteen years have gone by. I'm dead. You're a grandmother, Mama. I married George Gibbs, Mama. Wally's dead, too. Mama, his appendix burst on a camping trip up to North Conway. We just felt terrible about it. Don't you remember? But just for a moment now, we're all together. Mama, just for a moment, we're happy. Let's look at one another. And, of course, the mother doesn't. And then, just to go to the, to the end of this piece, Emily says, as the father comes down and says, where's my girl? Where's my birthday girl? She says in a loud voice to the stage manager, I can't. I can't go on. It goes so fast. We don't have time to look at one another. She breaks down sobbing. The lights dim on the left half of the stage. Mrs. Webb disappears. Emily says, I didn't realize. So all that was going on and we never noticed. Take me back up the hill to my grave. But first, wait. One more look. Goodbye. Goodbye, world. Goodbye, Grover's Corners, Mama and Papa. Goodbye to clocks ticking and Mama's sunflowers and food and coffee and new iron dresses and hot baths and sleeping and waking up. Oh, Earth, you're too wonderful for anybody to realize you.
She looks towards the stage manager and asks abruptly through her tears, do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Every, every minute? Stage manager, no. Pause. The saints and the poets, maybe. They do some. Do you want to say anything else about that? or? Uh, i got to get my shit together here. <laughs> it's just so profound and simple and real and dramatic and honest. And there's no big words. There's no cleverness. It's just the truth. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Matthew Weiner, author of the novel, Heather, The Totality. Can you read something you wrote that was tricky or hard or changed from the first draft? There were certain ideas that I really wanted to express and couldn't get the words right with them. And even in the copy editing phase, which is extremely painful because you're dealing with all of your own idiosyncrasies. And when you write dialogue, you're trying to imitate human speech. So grammar be damned, you know, it's the way people talk and connotation and denotation and words are used wrong and everything. But in here, I just wanted a certain clarity, especially with an idea. This was not an emotion. On page 67, I wanted to explain that Karen was really bitter about the fact that as her relationship with Heather had disintegrated, that Mark's had had increased. Because this to me was just fascinating because I know I know it to be real. So I had this thing, it ended up being a very small paragraph, but it was a much longer section where I was just to explain why Karen, what Karen felt about Mark being still being close to Heather. So it says, as much as Karen hated the loss of what had been, what she really hated was that Mark was reaping the rewards of all her hard work, exaggerating his own conflicts with their daughter, when for the most part they enjoyed each other's company and their shared interests of coffee and shopping and letting her do whatever she wanted. That was a distillation of a very long section where Karen was talking about, or the narrator was describing Karen, thinking about how Mark had it made, and that she, Karen, was responsible for the person that Mark was enjoying, that Mark was harvesting her work. You know, I love the way it turned out because it's really Karen's version of it. Just like you could hear her saying, like, you could hear her yelling at him. You know, you guys get to do whatever you want. You know, you, you know why she loves you? Because you both, you, you, because all you do is take her for coffee and shopping and let her do whatever she wants. And that's all she wants. And so it became a kind of uh, colder version of that statement, almost objective, it was a huge section, and I, I was literally looking for the terrible version of it. it. It was two or three pages of Karen on a rant about how Mark was deliberately hurting her by showing off how much Heather loved him still. Where do you write? Um, I will write anywhere that I can. Uh, I have written in Starbucks. I have written in the public library. I usually can't have too many distractions. This thing was a compulsion, and and I wrote, you know, even while I was directing Orange is the New Black, I wrote in, a, in you know, any place where I can have quiet. Um, I sometimes turn off the Wi-Fi. I used to write in the library because they didn't have any Wi-Fi. I am easily distracted. I, I, even, I can't write in a room with a bed usually because that's where I end up writing and then sleeping. So I need some sort of discipline. But I like to write in the 
most unappealing environment that I can find. And I have this beautiful home office, and I just have to sort of block it out when I'm working there. But um, I can write anywhere. It's been, it's been a gift. I can write anywhere. I can also not write anywhere because that's, the, that, that's basically what I'm revealing here. I, have to, I, I don't have to be in the mood, but I have to have coffee and isolation and a lack of distractions. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Taking a walk for any period of time, even if I have my phone with me, is the best way for, for me to get away from writing. And I love socializing. I do. I always want to be alone, but I love being with other people. It really takes me away from a lot of things. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? You have to be very careful about this. Um, I've learned over a long period of time, uh, but I have writers that I trust and family that I trust. My wife, Linda, is someone who sees it pretty early. You know, a lot of the writers that I've worked with, um, and I, I frequently have a writer's assistant, and they will either be there when I'm doing it or I will trust them. It varies. David Chase, especially, you know, uh, was someone that I will wait until it's perfect, but uh, um, or think it's perfect. But I will, I will always send him what I'm doing, and we still share with each other. But Semi Chellis is someone who was really important on this because she'd written fiction. Um, just writers that I know. I'm always dying to share at a certain point, and then I'm like, and and because I have a stack of stuff of other people that I have to read, you have to be patient. There are only certain people you can expect to read something immediately. A.M. Holmes saw this before anyone. It was very helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't like it. <laughs> it's painful. It makes me angry. Uh, but I obviously have never let it stop me. So it really, sometimes it becomes funny when there's so much of it. Um, and I have to tell people that it never goes away. And I can't deal with it other than getting back to work. I mean, I, I do what everybody does. I lick my wounds and I get back to it. If you can't do that, you can't do this job. You have to thrive on it. Hopefully you'll have a story. I mean, Mad Men was a rare example where, you know, you get this sense of justice about the world, which is that everyone rejected this thing, everyone, for years and years and years, and then it succeeded. So you start to have the long-term hope of it. And I also revel in stories from other writers and podcasts and things like this that where I hear about people that I admire Having someone tell them, you know, read the reviews for The Great Gatsby. It'll, it'll blow your mind. It'll just make your heart hurt. That poor man it was his masterpiece, and he's like writing a letter to some reader saying, I'm sorry you want your money back. What is your favorite word? I, I don't think I have a favorite word. I mean, I like word, certain words for their musicality, certain words for the emotions that they evoke. I love the word melancholy for obvious reasons. It's got a musical quality. It's, a, it's, a, it's got a bunch of things together. I love memory. It's a really great word. I love uh, anything that has, you know, musicality to it, cacophony, you know, whatever. When you have ki my kids are really into words, and they're just walking around saying words out of context all the time. So there are a lot of words that I love that, you know, like, like squamous, <laughs> that they're just funny to them. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Matthew Weiner, author of the novel, Heather, The Totality. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.